0: Do you feel politically homeless, lost in the chaos of modern politics, not sure who to believe? Democrats call him a Republican. Republicans call him a socialist. He is Stephen Reynolds, the man in the middle.
1: Welcome to the Man in the Middle podcast, season two, episode I'm not even sure, folks, what episode it is. We are in the middle of a lockdown here in the state of Tennessee with a stay-at-home emergency. I'd like to uh, offer my best wishes out there to everyone that's listening. I know that we're all struggling with everything that's happening in the world right, right. now. And uh, we wanted to try to um, bring the podcast, continue the podcast. We were off for about a month as we were trying to figure out what to do. And uh, just first off, I'd really like to thank my producer, uh, Mr. Dalton Barrett at WGNS. He is going to uh, has, has made all of this possible for us, and is um, going to be trying to clean up some of these connections that we have during our interviews. Uh, unfortunately, the audio quality is not perfect. Uh, compared to what we do in the studio, but we're going to give it our best shot here and try to continue to bring uh, news to our followers and the people that tune into our podcast every week. And thank you so much for doing that. You know, folks, uh, we've never seen anything like this before. I think in my lifetime, um, you know, the, the wall coming down in the early 90s, 9-11 a 9-11 and now the pandemic are, are probably uh, three of the greatest things uh, uh, or, or biggest events that have happened in my lifetime. And so um, we're enduring, folks. Uh, a lot of Tennesseans are staying home and doing the right thing. And we certainly would like to um, um, offer our best wishes and prayers for our front folks that are on the front line out there, our essential workers, the truck drivers, the grocery store clerks, Uh, Of course, the doctors and the nurses and the people who have dedicated their life to healing other people. And so thank you uh, from all of us at the Man in the Middle podcast for doing your job and um, and keeping this country going. Uh, We're going to get there, folks. Uh, We just have to endure this and we have to plan better in the future. And that's why elections have consequences, everyone so glad you could join us today. I'm really excited about our guest. He's my former opponent in the 2018 primary and now once again a candidate for the United States House of Representatives District 4 in the state of Tennessee. Mr. Chris Hale will be joining us. Thanks again for tuning in to the Man in the Middle podcast. I'm Stephen Reynolds and we'll be right back.
0: Due to the COVID 19 pandemic, the Man in the Middle podcast has been recorded remotely. You may notice some cutouts or drops in audio quality. This is all due to the fact that we are recording from separate locations. We're sorry for the inconvenience and we hope that you still enjoy the program.
1: Welcome back to the Man in the Middle podcast. Joining me today is my guest, Mr. Christopher Hale. Chris is a former White House staffer, a Fox News contributor. A Time Magazine contributor and now once again a candidate for the United States House of Representatives in District Four in Tennessee, Chris Hale, welcome to the Man in the Middle. Hey, Stephen, really appreciate you having me today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for joining us, Chris, and and glad to see that you've gotten out there and gotten in the middle of this race. I know that um, these times are very challenging for everyone right now, and I can only imagine. Uh, how challenging they must be for a candidate. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about your background, Chris, sure. and tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, where you're born and raised. Sure. All of that stuff.
0: Well, I'm um, originally from Murfreesboro here in Rutherford County. So I uh, was born in 89 at the old uh, medical center uh, near MTSU, NTMC. Yeah. The we old? Had, yes. See, right. Yeah. right they always, it was interesting. They always had the uh, the hospital right next to the grave so you, you could you could do one stop for, for uh, living a life here so I uh, <laughs> grew up in Regency Park Drive Regency Park area right there in just the north north of Murphys uh, North Murfreesboro, Um and public school educated um, and um, uh, went to Siegel High School and got to graduate there in 2007 one of the first uh, graduating full graduating classes of the Siegel High School with uh, Ken Nolan was our principal um, after college admittedly at 18. Um, I wanted to get the heck out of Tennessee, so I decided to go to the most exciting place that I could find for college, Ohio. So I went to, <laughs> a, yeah, I went to a small Jesuit school, a small, small Catholic school in Ohio called Xavier. Um, we're known for our basketball team. Um, in my freshman year, um, I was getting more and more involved in politics. I was actually the president of the, uh, uh, of the high school public. My sophomore year of high school, um, but got more a little bit more progressive as I, I grew up and got inspired by President uh, then Senator Obama's 2008 campaign. So um, this that year, um, I, I trucked out on a bus and had years and spent the time knocking on doors in an Iowa blizzard and got caught up in that campaign. Spent my time in Iowa and then worked um, uh, later on during the general election in Ohio as an undergrad. Um, that gave me some opportunities to work again with, with the, um, the the organization called Organizing for America, which became the Obama reelect arm, and so that got me an opportunity um, at, at 22, to intern and then work at the White House, and then later on President Obama's uh, reelect campaign. And just to kind of give you a sense of my worldview and where I kind of fit in the party, if you will, um, my job at the White House was to to um, be a liaison to House Republicans. Uh, John Boehner was a um, former, uh, was the Speaker of the House, and he actually is a former graduate of my alma mater, Xavier. So, and then on the campaign in 2012, um, I worked on uh, faith outreach. And so, um, and then after that, um, after the, I worked uh, through the reelecting into 2013 in the administration and then left in 14 um, and got involved in, in advocacy from uh, from a faith perspective. So really, my two vistas to really understand my worldview is I'm a Democrat who has been selling progressive policies in certain places um, among Republicans, uh, among people of faith. So I, I, I oftentimes this podcast is called Men in the Middle." I oftentimes find myself I'm a I'm blue in a sea of red, and so um, that that really covers my worldview, my understanding of uh, 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 politics. When 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 I was 18, and you know, we had we had Phil Bredesen as uh, our governor. We had Bart Gordon um, as our U.S. rep. We had a bunch of local state state reps and state senators who were Democrats, and obviously things have changed significantly. And I think one of the things that you and I have had conversations about the past two years. Um, I also was a candidate in 18 for for U.S. Congress. Uh, Mariah Phillips ended up being the nominee. And Of course, Stephen was our nominee in 16. But one of the, you know, I think about every day as a Tennessean, uh, native Tennessean who spent time in Washington, but. Uh, also, it's been back here for a while now is what is the pathway forward? And, um, you know, I think I think you the, 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 the name of the show actually begs the question, what is the pathway forward for us who are trying to have a pragmatic way of covering, um, this in this state that's been dominated by Republican politics for about a dozen years now?
1: Yeah, that, that that's great stuff, Chris, and and thanks for adding that. You know, especially about the show. You know, I've, I often tell folks when the right moves so far right, the the left becomes the center, right, or the center sure. becomes the left. And so that's kind of where we are in Tennessee. For all the folks that are uh, listening outside of the state or outside of Rutherford County, uh, you know, it is a, a very difficult process here. There are a, you know, very heavy Republican uh, district here in the 4th Congressional District. However, uh, I believe that uh, obviously with your experience from compromising, working with Speaker Boehner before, you, you had to compromise,
0: right, Chris? Sure. I mean, that, that's what politics is all about. Absolutely. And I think that what we have to figure out, and I think that my belief is there are non-negotiables and then there are negotiables. And I think the big fight the parties have for the past four or five years, and honestly with Bernie's campaign in particular highlighting this, is what is it? what does it mean to be a Democrat? And for me, that the, there, there's a baseline governing principle about being a Democrat. And um, that should be, if you will, our creed and motto. But it's going to look different in different places. Um, you know, I, I actually built a relationship with uh, Alexandria ocasio Cortez about three or four years ago, and what what it means to be a Democrat um, in, in the Queens and Bronx is different than what it means to be a Democrat in the Fourth Congressional District, and that's okay.
1: It's that okay is, to have
0: yeah. Yeah, It's okay to have diversity of the party, and some folks understand that, and some don't. And I think that's a that's a hard line to pass. But for me, a Democrat simply believes in government, believes in government being a social good, um, believes in a government that fights for working folks, um, believes in equality of opportunity across places, um, believes in an equitable and just society. And so it, how that frames out in policies, there's a lot of fights to be worth having. But I think the baseline understanding of our worldview as Democrats is we think that government can be an arm for good and to help people um, make a living for themselves and their families.
1: That's a a great message, Chris, and I believe that as well. You know, it's all part of the social contract, right? So um, over the years, uh, previously on these podcasts, we've talked about how we have foreign interests, foreign entities, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians who are trying to divide our country. And there is half of the people in this country that Will tell you that they hate the government and sure. so and and the government is us so i you know that that such a dichotomy there that that i'm like hey look you know you're being programmed to hate the government because it's really us you know and um so anyway chris let's let's move on a little bit let's talk about um you you decided to run for the u.s house this time you, you'll be in the primary election in august And um, talk about the difficulties this time with, obviously, we're uh, undergoing a national health emergency right now and um, uh, stay-at-home orders from the governor of Tennessee. How difficult and how do you plan, how difficult is it, and how do you plan to campaign in this environment?
0: Sure. I think one thing I should explain about the difficulty is my whole theory of politics is, particularly as a minority party, um, as so we're we're trying I'm trying to convince folks if I do happen to be the nominee um, I'm trying to convince folks to vote for a, a Democrat which is going to to be difficult for some people and so my, my whole theory of, of politics is you cannot vote for who you do not know um, and that's particularly the case in a situation where you're 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 a minority party where and and um, you're asking people to 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 uh, change change uh, habits from previous years. And so, my, you know, I believe in the power of face-to-face encounters. I believe in the power of of, of persuasion, of relationship building. Um, The 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 reality, though, it is, is that what has happened is has put us in a digital-first community. Um, I am a millennial, for better or worse. People take that as they can, but um, my particular worldview is that the the biggest the biggest asset that i bring to this campaign i think in just pure politics and just kind of putting the, the framework of how, how to win election is as a strong digital footprint um if you kind of look at my expenditures if anyone ever gets bored and wants to do that from it from the past previous years i think in terms of um tennessee politics i probably spent more on Facebook per capita than any candidate in the state. And that was because, frankly, um, I was new to the game. I got in late. I had two very good competitors who, who had built relationships on the ground. And the only way that I was going to compete was by getting a hold of rank and file voters. I think this is something really important to understand, too. I think for listeners, I have the worldview that the local Democratic parties are important functions of civil society uh, uh, winning elections, etc., but that their ability to get you over the top, are about, are reaches, but reach, reach are, their reach is not as much as some would suggest. I think the average rank and file Democratic primary voter, the and definitely the average rank and file general election voter has very little relationship with the the infrastructure of their party, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, the reality of it is, if you have if you have kids, you have families, if you're a young person. Um, getting involved in a party apparatus is probably going to be not tenable or viable. So what I'm hoping, frankly, and what I'm trying to do is, yes, I have relationships with the party infrastructure um, from previous runs and, and uh, just the years I've put in. But my particular skill set, I hope, and that, that what I'm testing, what I believe, is to actually go straight to the voters. Now, would I love to do that through, through door-to-door encounters, through events? Absolutely. But that isn't available to me, and so to right now, so I imagine that in terms of dollar in, dollar out, resource in, resource out, um, we are going to go heavy, even heavier than we have in the past on the digital front. So, uh, your listeners will be hearing from me on their feeds, their social media feeds. They they will know my name and what I stand for. That's great,
1: Chris. I think that's a great approach. And that's really, you know, what you can do, you know, all you can do. And I can tell you, as, as one of your former competitors, you have a strong social media uh, game and, and and the ability to campaign on that. And uh, so anyway, so I think that's a great approach. Let's um, let's move on to um, uh, the, your policy objectives. What? What, what do you think is the most important thing that the Congress should be doing right now, Chris?
0: Yeah, to me, I think what has happened is the coronavirus has communicated. It, the, the hard thing about being a Democrat is oftentimes we talk so, so well to people's highest ideals, but we don't adequately address and confront and talk about their greatest fears. Um, and to me, what has happened is these things that were once invisible – about the suffering of Tennesseans, so to so many, has become visible with the coronavirus. And so the way I'm framing this entire election, and I don't think this is me having to frame it. I just think this is the reality that people face. The, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, when the pandemic came, what did they do to stop it? And who helped you? And who did it? And to me, that is the biggest policy question that faces the Congress going forward is what can we do to help people? And what struck me is that um, that running against socialism in 2020 is no longer a viable option for the Republican Party. Donald Trump believes in giving cash to the American people. Ironically, Scott Desjardins is skeptical. About it, um, he is he voted no on the very first bill to help help our people phase one, which would have gave free testing uh, to for, for coronavirus testing to the people of Tennessee. We have folks in Bradley County up in down in Cleveland, which is on the far uh, eastern edge of the district, who had to pay four hundred bucks to get testing because there weren't wow. enough free tests ab- available. And Scott Desjardins, a doctor, mind you, who took the Hippocratic oath to 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 um, protect his people uh, and to do no harm said so he said that you know that, that he he did not want that to be reality um the, i think that folks right now need income either through jobs if that's not available through the government we need checks we need checks to the people and we need access to health care now on the on the question of health care there's always these ideological debates medicare for all a pathway to single payer lowering the page the age of medicare um, and there's a thousand different methodologies, but I think we can agree right now of some baseline approaches that I think should, should be non-negotiable. Number one, uh, no one should pay um, uh, for, for um, suffering from the coronavirus. If you're uninsured, the state should take it up or the federal government should take it up. But also, too, we need a pathway where every Tennessean is insured. And my pathway starts with a starts with a scaled down version of uh, single payer. I think every Tennessean should have access to emergency care and not be fearful that it's going to bankrupt them. And then we can build on top of that. But I think that instead of getting caught up on these cholesterol issues of theories about how we can get there, I think we take the simple first step, and the first step to me is a is access um, uh, to free. Uh, coronavirus treatment, number one. And number two, I think we need to start looking at a universal um, uh, catastrophic health care for our people in Tennessee. Um, the way we could do that is through federal action. If that's not available to us, I think the political pressure of having a Democrat who has won in rural Tennessee on a simple platform of health care as a right, um, I think that is a means of, of pressuring uh, our governor to take the free money that's available to him to expand Medicaid. That is, um, one in the long term, that is the best thing we can do. Um, and I think one thing I would say on that, too, is there, there, there's really two historical notions of a U.S. representative in Congress. They're a lawmaker, but they're also an advocate. And the question that I get all the time around this community is, where is Congressman Deja Where is he day in? day addressing the needs of our community who is he fighting for um if i if i drove down the fourth congressional district and i do if i drive um, down the former sixth congressional district i do i see what congressman um what congressman bart gordon brought to rutherford county i can see it i can physically use it i can see the greenway i can see the infrastructure brought in. i can see what congressman lincoln davis did in rural tennessee but there is no evidence that Scott DeJoy has done anything because what happened was that scandal that we don't have to get into again and again, it limited his ability to govern. And in 10 years, he's gotten us nothing. In 10 years, he didn't stop the worst global crisis in our nation's history from coming. And at it came, he's done nothing. So I think that what folks are going to be looking for is folks that can get them help. Um, P- Tennesseans are going to be struggling. The latest unemployment numbers suggest that in a period of one month, our unemployment in this state went from about 4% to 13% and by the time election day rolls around it could be 25 so wow. i think there's going to be some, there's going to be some hurting people around here and i hope i can convince them that it's time for a change
1: Yeah. Well, I'm with you, Chris. I really, really, uh, that's a great breakdown of what's been happening. I think uh, Congressman Desjardins was one of 80 uh, out of 400 uh, representatives, over 400. There were only 80 that voted against the recent uh, stimulus bill. Uh, is what you're referring to. And so I would love to hear from our congressman what his alternate plan is. Uh, that you know what he had planned on the people doing it, voting against this bill, but you make some absolutely outstanding points. and, um, and you're right. Uh, the job of the Congressman is not, not just the legislative but is to advocate for the people here. And that is, is what it's really all
0: about. Absolutely, it's not just individuals too. Um, we have a lot of small businesses um, in in this district, um, especially food industries um, in, in particular. City Cafe in Murfreesboro, uh, 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 granolas down in, in 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 Gondolas down in Warren County. We have restaurants that are suffering and are really in deep trouble, of closing their doors. And we have banks who are who have have, have, have failures to work with the federal government, and getting them access to capital. Um, it's remarkable because this is the first time in our nation's history, with understandable reason, that the federal government has said, do not go to work. Do not participate in in, in the life of your, your nation's economy. Um, but they have to incentivize us to, to not do so. And it's two parts. It's making sure people have access to revenue, but also, mm-hmm. too, that businesses have something to keep them or to go through months and months and months without any income. And months and months and months with, with built in expenses uh, that they're going to face, and so we have yet to fill that gap. And you know, we're sitting here, um, you and I, talking on the 9th of April. Congress has not been in session for over a week, and they're not going to be back to the end of April. And we are we are on the Titanic right now, right? We're straight yes. in deck chairs. We're not yeah. we're not we're not clogging the hole. We're not we're not getting lifeboats out to folks.
1: Yeah, that's, I, I, you know, it's amazing when I look back, Chris, we started talking about COVID-19 in, middle, in the middle of January on our podcast. And uh, so we've had a lot of time to prepare for this. Um, you know, earlier you mentioned about um, helping the American people and, and helping the people of Tennessee, and that's what you wanted to do. Um, Chris, is there, isn't this, the same as a this is a national security issue. Would you not agree with that? I mean, it's the same as a foreign
0: army invading our shores. Absolutely. And what's remarkable about it, is if you can imagine, too, um, if you can imagine, too, the, the president president rightly called this, a war and he says the enemy is invisible. Uh, those who of us who are just old enough to remember, not after nine eleven, George W. Bush said some of their non state pressing I never recall after 9-11, uh, uh, President Bush asking Governor, Den's Governor Sunquist to, to lead the battle. We didn't outsource right. the war to the state governments. If this is truly a war, it requires a robust national response. And yes, Bill Lee, um, I've, I've been very critical of his response. It's gotten better in Tennessee, but there's been failure. But more, what matters more than Bill Lee is that our United States... Uh, re- re- representation um you know when, when scott days the past five times he's made a pledge to you and i as he defend the constitution of the united states he has full role to protect both our, our community and our nation he's a federal officer of this government and i think the failure of this of this has has been at a federal level to both stop it when it was coming and to both respond adequately and quickly when it came
1: yeah. And so and how, it
0: is a national I, security issue. Yeah. And how about
1: to prepare, Chris? I mean, we're ready for a nuclear war. We have thousands of nuclear warheads, but we don't have enough face mask for our doctors in an emergency room.
0: I mean, we should. Do you, do you think we should have been better prepared for this? Yeah, it seems that. And, and we will find out more. Um, obviously, we will find out more about the failures of the government to be prepared for it. Um, obviously, we know that George W. Bush spoke about this in 2007, and then Barack Obama spoke about it in 2010, and then um, in 2017 or 18, the President of the United States um, he he um, pretty much fired and, and home the pandemic response team. He got a, and he, he, was, he received a 70-page uh, report. His his transition team. To, and congressional leaders were also invited to be prepared for a, an administrative response to the pandemic. And what strikes me again and again and again is that we, are, we, we, are, we actually have the most doctors uh, in the congressional delegation by percentage of any, any state in the country. So we do have a doctor who has represented us for 10 years. And once again, before he ever took that oath of office, he took a Hippocratic oath to do harm to protect his patients. Um, it's remarkable to me that in the midst of this, Scott Desjardins was nowhere to be found. Was nowhere to be found. He did not communicate. He did not use the word coronavirus, COVID-19, or the controversial phrase, Chinese virus in any kind of communications to his constituents until the 21st of March. Until the, the until the virus had broken out. So he was not prepared. His people were not prepared. He was not. He was. Um, he was lifting up the um the great the great successes of our economy when the very thing that was about to destroy our economy was on its way and right. he was there.
1: great points chris great points chris i know that you are friends with uh, uh the democratic nominee presumption nominee uh, joe biden can you talk a little bit about your relationship with joe biden
0: yeah, I can. so the first time I met Joe Biden, uh, outside of the campaign, I didn't meet him on the campaign in 08 briefly, but um, I actually was an intern. Uh, it was in, in in December of 2011, right after I undergrad. Interns don't get the sexiest jobs in the world. Um, yeah. we, we, they, uh, people who work in campaigns don't have to be the case as well. well it's the same at 1600 as well. Um, and so my job was I was working in legislative affairs, which is the end of the White House, the opposite end of the, the West Wing on the East Wing, the, uh, the uh, residential mansion. And so I was, re- I was asked to move a stack of papers, um, essentially. Um, and I got too ambitious with my project I, and, and maybe in a, intent to, intent, with intent to impress. And as you can, as you can, can imagine, it, I'm rolling the papers across, and they go flying. You know, the stack they cart, they cart of papers goes flying. And so I am, I'm on my knees trying to pick up stuff and I turn around and there's this man with my, a manila envelope and he says, my name's Joe, let me help you out. And so that's the first time I met Joe Biden. Um, I got a chance to have closer interactions with him, uh, particularly in the 2012 campaign. Um, Joe, Joe and I are both Roman, and so, I did about, so he was a heavy communicator of presidents and the vice presidents and uh, how they responded to to the needs and the uh, values of the faith uh, community and uh, built a relationship with him um, even deeper um, in the progressive faith advocacy sphere. We actually, for several times, so um, we got breakfast in 2015 um, there with a group of faith leaders he invited over to the presidential, the vice presidential residence um, in preparation for Pope Francis's visit to the United States in 2015. Those were Easier times, obviously, in retrospect, but um, it were very difficult times for him. It was right after he had lost his son. But the, the man is t- seeming and teeming with character. And I think what folks, so what folks, I don't think um, necessarily understand or are deeply involved in democratic politics, is that Joe Joe Biden might not always run had the best campaign. They might not have the the best the best uh, infrastructure on the ground, or even the most money. But what you found time, and again, particularly in this state too, um, you got to remember that Joe. I, look, I was, I was, I was with Joe in in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. Things were tough. Things were not looking good for for the vice president. But what was remarkable about it is when folks were simply allowed, were able to just simply go to the polls and just vote their conscience. He always did better. And what was remarkable to me is. That when 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 James Clyburn, the uh, highest-ranking Black elected official in this country, uh, endorsed Joe, and he said it this way: he said, "We know Joe, but more importantly, Joe knows us." The average voter in this country is not consumed with the drama of politics; they're not consumed even with the intricate details of policy. They ask, "Who's a good person?" and I think that's what we see. And Joe Biden. And here's my prediction. I don't I'm not saying Joe's going to win the state of Tennessee. I think that's a really tough hill to climb. I think that he'll do a lot better than we've done in a long time. I think we're going to look at margins that are closer to 2000 and 2004 and 2008 than 2012 and 2016. Um, The Joe Joe has a cachet of respect um, in our community here, but also across the state and across the south that that can't be that can't be um, downplayed. Um, I will say this, and I think this is important. Um, Bernie Sanders has some good ideas, and Bernie Sanders has opened up a part of, of the Democratic Party that needs to be expressed, and that that is working-class populism. People do feel screwed over. Particularly I'm young, 31, people younger than me. Um, there, there's, there's an attraction to Bernie because there's a sense that he understands deeply the malaise of the American people, of the especially working people. I've made the conclusion that Yes, he does, but Joe's the one who can fix it. And so I think yeah. you can understand both the problems, but have a different idea on how you how you solve them.
1: Right, right. Well, at some point, Chris, you know, uh, pragmatism and that whole idea of compromise has to come in there. And there, in order to advance the agenda to provide health care for all of Tennesseans, there's going to have to be compromise. That's the whole art of politics that's involved there. She so makes some very good points, Chris. I see you winning in November, and I see that your prior relationship with the soon-to-be next president of the United States as being a huge asset for the people of Tennessee. Do, well, you, do I hope you th- so. Yeah, I do too. I really do. I think it would be a huge uh, – he's going to know where the fourth district is. Would you agree with that?
0: Yes. No, absolutely. I think that one thing to understand, I think a witness of democratic politics that's happened through the years that I think we can fight against, is – but but just – give or take, kind of get around the computer in Chicago or wherever in New York City or Washington, D.C. and say, these are the people that, we're gonna, that are going to vote for us. And these are the people who aren't, and so all the energy goes towards those who are going to vote for us and those who likely will vote for us. But not a lot of energy goes to what I what I use a Christian phrase, missionary territory. Let's right. be real in Tennessee, a Democrat's a missionary, and mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're, we're in foreign land and to preach the gospel of, of, of democratic values. And it's a, it's a, but what I think we have in Joseph Biden is so, someone who values that. Remember, he was elected in a red state. He was a red state Democrat. He himself was really the, the person who moved Delaware into purple, but it's not completely blue. It's still a difficult state. Um, nice. And so I think that he understands to any Democrat or moderate out there who just uh, exhausted uh, the politics of small things, the vanity politics of, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of personality and fighting, et cetera joe biden is too and he's spent his career fighting against it but i think more importantly too for people tennessee he's not going to write us off just because the the state might vote for his opponent um it seems that in this recovery if if your electorate voted for donald trump the goods are coming the masks are coming Hmm. uh the pp ppe is coming if you if you lost you're not going to get that i think that joe biden will actually correct some of the mistakes of his democratic predecessors of uh, giving love to places that are not necessarily his electoral base
1: representing everyone and i think yes. that's i think that is uh, such a great point and i and i agree with you chris what this country needs is healing the whole reason why we started this podcast was to <laughs> show that 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 folks can disagree but still be friends and still understand that we're Americans and still understand that that we actually agree on the vast majority of issues. It's just a couple of issues that are keeping us apart right now. And, um, you know, once again, we have foreign entities that are trying to drive that division within our country. So, uh, Chris, let's talk about one other thing. You have uh, you were recently elected uh, to be the uh, delegate for Tennessee's 4th Congressional District for Joe Biden. So uh, we, we're not certain yet if we're going to have a convention in Milwaukee or, or how that's all going to work out. But can you touch on the responsibilities of a delegate, what you will be doing at the convention, should we have that? And what are your ideas? Will we be having a convention? What do you think?
0: So I think I think it's more likely than not that we will not have a convention. But things could change, but it mm-hmm. seems that it seems that the public health uh, concern is is if it is an concern, um, they're not going to do it. And let's just recall where the convention is for a moment. It's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which well, this past week against the outcry, the Democratic governor, the legislature and the state courts had an election um and during the middle of a pandemic i think there's particular sensitivity um in wisconsin right now in milwaukee right now to doing that again um and so i do imagine that it's going to look different and just and so the 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 responsibility of a delegate is is first and foremost i take a pledge to support the candidate for whom i um to for whom i i signed up for that's not a legal obligation i i Break is just like an elector um, uh, breaks their promise to vote for uh, the winner of the state in a presidential election. We see that uh, happen again. It's called a faith. It's a, called a faithless elector, and there's such thing as a faithless delegate. That's not going to happen with me. I mean, this race is over. Bernie's Bernie has more or less seated the room. We're moving on. But the what it does, <clears throat> what the attempt of it is, it is noble in some capacity. It's the idea that the DNC exists for people and people. So people in the country elected by their citizens to the and vote for their candidate. But here's the part I think is maybe more pertinent and matters more than not, not the race is more or less over. Um, there is different committees that exist. Um, and it's really important that when you do this, that you have a delegate who frankly knows the politics of the time. You don't always get to participate and represent your community as Forcefully as you need to, but for example, we have a we have a um, platform, and so it's important that you have folks in these positions who know who know what they're doing. Sometimes it really plays out in 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 tangible ways uh, in how the committee operates, and the platform we pass, and and all the candidates we run, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely, absolutely, Chris. I've got
1: one more question for you.
0: You know, uh, the United
1: States Postal Service is a secure enough entity for the irs selective service the judicial system why is the united states postal service not secure enough for the election
0: commission older voters are going to be more likely to to utilize the system i think unfortunately young people even myself i'm 31 i am not as i am not as thoughtful on participating in the postal service as I ought, you know, and, and, and mailing things as I ought, um, so I don't think it—I don't think it disproportionately advantages. Some—it's not some left-wing conspiracy. It's literally to protect the well-being of our citizens, many of whom are older. Yeah,
1: right. Well, we have 17 states now that already use vote by mail. They had no. There's no evidence of fraud, even though that's what we're being told. Uh, there's this great chance of fraud. Well, if that's the case, then. Why does the IRS use the Postal Service, right? And so, um, anyway, I think uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar has a bill now and a petition that she has going that maybe you just mentioned that, that, you know, um, to try to get this nationwide um, so that, that folks that choose to vote by mail can vote by mail. So. Chris, thank you so much for a great interview. Anything else you would like to say to the people of Tennessee? I I hope we can have you on again multiple times as you're going through this race. Give us updates. Uh, 16 counties, as I know very well, is a very difficult area to cover. What would you like to tell the people of Tennessee
0: right now, Chris? You know, I think the biggest thing I can say to you is right now, um, obviously, I can't I'm not asking for your vote, but I'm promising your help. Uh, So to any Tennessean who is struggling with with this pandemic, either through job loss, um, through through loss of income, through mental health, through challenges economically, educationally and the rest. um, I want to promise you um, that help is on the way and we're not going to just do this. um, I'm not just saying help on the way on November 3rd. I come from a background that uh, that unapologetically understands government and how to interact with government, and my team will as well. And so we are ready to help folks and small businesses uh, survive this time and to make to 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 make it through. But also to um, for the future, we need a member of Congress who fights for us and our families. Um, he was not prepared, and Tennessee lost. So I promise that helps on the way.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. We uh, wish you the best out there and stay safe. And um, um, thanks again for, for taking a, a run at this. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, United States House of Representatives candidate for Tennessee's District 4, Mr. Chris Hale, has been with Thank us you for today. for having me. Thank, Thank you, you for Chris. Me. Talk to you soon. Welcome back to the Man in the Middle podcast. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Mr. Christopher Hale, for that great interview. Wow, I was really blown away by some of the things that he was saying. And, um, you know, I think Chris has uh, really tuned in to a lot of the feelings that people out there of Tennessee, or at least the people that I'm talking to, uh, are having regarding this situation. You know, folks, a lot of people don't really want to think about politics right now. They just want to think about the, the essentials. And I think that we're all in that shape. But, you know, our uh, patriotic duty and, and our job as citizens of this republic, our democratic duty is to get out and vote. And I have talked to so many people that will literally crawl through glass to get to the polls this November. Let's hope our election commission and our legislators don't make that happen. Let's hope that folks have an alternative to showing up at the polls. It would be really nice to show up at the mailbox and uh, and send your ballot in that way. So I'm calling on the Tennessee state legislators. Give us mail-in voting. The citizens demand it, we'll have higher participation rates. Let's get it done, Tennessee. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Man in the Middle podcast. I'm Stephen Reynolds, and we'll see you next week.